Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2 as we continue to follow the thoughts and cries and laments of this prophet who goes vulnerably and honestly before God and asks, how long? This morning, our specific theme is how long until comfort comes at last. We live, and we're particularly aware of that right now, in a broken world filled with pain, uncertainty, heartache, suffering, fear. And how long till comfort comes at last? It was November 15th. 1873, a ship called the Ville de Havre was leaving New York Harbor, bound for France. On it was a woman named Mrs. H.G. Spafford and her four daughters, who were named Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie. Mr. Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago. He was also a godly Presbyterian elder, and he had to stay behind because he had just lost his business in the great Chicago fire. He was going to meet his wife and daughters in France in just a few weeks. However, seven days into the trip of the Ville de Havre, it was rammed at night by an iron British vessel by mistake. In less than two hours, at 2 a.m., it sank to the bottom. Many, many lives were lost, including Mrs. Spafford's four daughters. But her life was spared. Nine days later, the crew that survived went to Wales, and Mrs. Spafford wired her husband two words, saved alone. In the Chicago fire, Horatio Spafford lost everything in his possession. And in the tragedy at sea, he lost almost everything he loved. He booked passage on another ship, and on his way to comforting his grieving wife, the captain of the ship he was on brought him into his cabin and said, this is the place where the Ville de Havre went down. In the midst of his pain and heartache, God's comfort came to him in an amazing way, and he penned a poem, When Peace Like a River attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But the story doesn't end there. Horatio Spafford had a friend who was a worship leader and a songwriter. His name was Philip Blass. And Philip Blass wrote the tune to the hymn we now know as it is well. And 
Philip Blass called the name of the tune the Ville de Havre. Soon after writing the tune, Philip Blass and his wife went on a trip. They were traveling from Buffalo, New York to Chicago for a series of evangelistic meetings where Philip was to be leading worship. About eight hours into the trip, near Ashtabula, Ohio, a bridge over a ravine gave way, and the seven cars of the train and 146 people fell down to the icy river below. Most drowned, others burned in the fire as the train exploded in flames. Philip Blass would have been able to survive, but his wife was inextricably caught up in the wreckage. And so he stayed by her side. And they both faced the flames of death together. This great hymn, whose lyrics were penned after one, or if you count the fire, two tragedies, and whose tune was written preceding another tragedy, has been used of God to bring comfort to millions of Christ followers over the past 150 years. 2 Corinthians 1 says that God is the God of all comfort. But sometimes the comfort of God is brought to us in surprising and even shocking ways. Now let's review where we've been in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is upset in the initial chapter because sin in the church is rampant. It's like poison. It's like gangrene infecting the entire people of God. And Habakkuk laments, how long, God? How long will you put up with this? How long will your people shrivel because of sin? And God, comforting Habakkuk, says, don't worry. I see what's going on. I want you to be comforted. I'm going to deal with it. Now, Habakkuk was just hoping that God would deal with it by bringing revival or bringing repentance to the church. But God goes on to say that he's going to bring the godless Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and take God's people into exile in Babylon. Well, now Habakkuk has another lament. God, how is that comforting? How is it comforting when your people suffer and are carried away as slaves? And so God seeks to comfort Habakkuk again and says, don't worry. I'm going to deal with the Babylonians as well. I'm going to bring harsh judgment on them. Now you may say, how is that comforting? How is it comforting to know that, that people are going to be destroyed? How is it comforting as you extend that thought to think that one day the wrath of God will come upon the world? Well, imagine being in a Jewish death camp in 1945, 
You've seen friends and family members tortured, abused, shot, gassed, burned. Your number's coming up. But in 1945, the American soldiers come in and they unleash wrath on the Germans. And you're freed. Would that be comforting? You bet it would. And that's the kind of comfort, though strange and shocking and surprising, that God is wanting to give Habakkuk and us. How long until comfort comes at last? And God says, in a very comforting way, I have this. Evil will be defeated. So let's see what God has to say in this passage. It's Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20, as is our custom to show reverence for the Word of God. Why don't we all stand wherever we are in our homes and uh, hear the Word of God? Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, again, against Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. In other words, the cracking stones and the creaking beams will shout shame to all that the Babylonians have built through their wickedness. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? In other words, everything evil does, everything the Babylonians have done will all be burned up. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that nations worry themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's comforting. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now that's not just pornographic. That goes way beyond. It's a, it's a euphemism for sexual immorality and abuse. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Again, they'll be exposed. The cup in the Lord's right hand, the cup of wrath, will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. In other words, God cares even about how the wicked treat the animals and creatures on earth. 
for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to be comforted in all our affliction, in all the results of evil schemes. He wants us to take comfort. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word to us. Let's pray. Father, there's some intense language in this passage. And there is a picture of you unleashing wrath. And it's hard to find comfort. But Lord, that's what you mean it to be. So help us to process this properly. And even as we face what we're going through now, to be comforted, even as we wait for the comfort that will come at last at the coming of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been standing in your homes, go ahead and take a seat. So there's three ways in this passage God comforts those who are afflicted by evil in the world. First of all, be comforted that the Lord is never mocked. In Galatians 6, verse 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A person shall reap what they have sown. All through this passage, you'll find five woes. Now, those woes aren't curses. They're actually, as it says in verse 6, taunts. The, The righteous, by God's grace, are brought to the place where they actually mock evil. It's poetic justice. It's God comforting his people by saying, what goes around comes around. Now, we need to pause right here and recognize that God seeks to comfort the afflicted, but he also seeks to afflict the comfortable. In this passage, we see the holiness of God. And so in this passage, we too are warned about taking sin lightly. But what God particularly wants to say to us who suffer at the hands of evil in this broken, fallen world is that we're to be comforted because evil will be one day brought to its knees. The wicked mock the righteous. Evil mocks good. But God says, ultimately, the joke's on evil. And it's no joke. The oppressor, the corrupt, the cruel, they won't get away with it. What goes around comes around. Look at verse 13. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely 
for fire. In other words, those who are puffed up in their pride and arrogance, trusting in their own strength and are cruel to other people. God says they weary themselves for nothing. God is seeking to comfort his people by saying that ultimately evil is simply spinning its wheels. The Lord of hosts means the God of the angel armies. He sees all the ungodliness. He sees all the evil and wickedness of people in the world. And God wants to comfort his people who feel that evil sometimes goes unchecked around us. In verses 6 through 16, we see all the great reversals when God stands up ultimately and brings comfort at last by defeating evil. Evil getting what it deserves. Hoarders will be left with nothing. Loan sharks will face violent debt collectors. Plunderers will be plundered. Exploiters will be exploited. Abusers will be abused. Molesters will be molested. Oppressors will be oppressed. The arrogant will be humbled. And the self-sufficient will be brought to its knees. Now, does that sound harsh? Does that sound merciless? Or does it just sound just? God is a gracious God. He's a loving God. But as we've already seen in Habakkuk, He's a holy God that does not tolerate evil. I think this sometimes sounds harsh to our ears because we have a tendency to minimize the holiness of God. Habakkuk complained about sin, but God reveals that he himself hates sin. Do we hate sin? Do you hate sin in your own life? I find in my own life that oftentimes I hate the consequences of sin, but sometimes stop short at hating my sin. Many of you know my personality. I tend to be very passionate, and as a result, sometimes I'll exaggerate, or sometimes I'll minimize the bad or minimize my sin. Now, I actually really do that not because I'm passionate, but because I'm insecure, and I want to appear better than I am. And sometimes I'm exposed before others in my exaggeration or minimization. And in those moments, I hate the consequences of my sin. I need to become more of a man who hates my sin. How about you? Where are you hating the consequences of your sin? more than the sin itself. 
This passage is so shocking as God talks about wrath on the Babylonians and representatively wrath on all evil. But it's only shocking because we minimize the holiness of God and his absolute justice. But another reason why we're shocked by this is we also tend to minimize the love of God. The reason why God is seeking to comfort Habakkuk and the people of God by talking about wrath on the Babylonians is because of how great his love is for his people. Let me see if I can explain this. When we really, really love someone, when they are harmed by evil, wrath rises up within us. For instance, one of the things that I'm often very troubled by in the world is sexual abuse. I just fall apart when I hear of children who've been kidnapped and molested, women who've been raped. That troubles me deeply. But guess what? If it was my wife or my children, or my grandchildren, I wouldn't merely be troubled. I would want to unleash hell. God wants us to be comforted over the prospect of the coming wrath on evil because he says, I love you so much. I respond with intense wrath against anyone who would have evil designs on you. Don't minimize these passages that seem to be harsh. It's giving us a picture of the heart of God, and it's revealing the kind of heart that we're to have as well. The comfort of grace is that if you've been wronged, and we all have, if you've been abused, if you've been wounded, if you've been taken advantage of, God says he sees it. And he says, don't you worry. I will not be mocked. And I will deal with evil. In verse 16, It says, the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to Babylon. In other words, the cup of his wrath will be poured out. In Psalm 73, 17, the psalmist is troubled by evil. He said, I almost lost hope until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their end. But thankfully, God is loving and gracious as well as just. Because what's revealed in this passage, in a sense, is a reminder that all of us are Babylonians. Before a holy God, none of us can stand. And so the good news of the gospel comes to us. Because in Matthew 26, Jesus said to the Father, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, Jesus was willing to drink this cup of the Lord's right hand. 
this cup of God's wrath so that those of us who are willing to admit and acknowledge and confess that we are the Babylonians in so many ways, that we would be protected from the coming wrath as we transfer our trust from ourselves to the Savior who drank the cup of God's wrath to the bitter end. One day, all injustices will be fixed. All wrongs will be righted. But until that day, we take comfort that God sees, is not mocked, and evil will be brought to its knees. Secondly, be comforted that the kingdom is never stopped. Look at verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God comforts Habakkuk and us by saying, despite evil's attempts to stop it, the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of grace, renewal, restoration, released through Christ into the church and therefore into the world. In verses 12 and 13, we see evil. We see Babylon seemingly run amok. But in verse 14, God says, evil running amok will be stilled and stopped, but nothing will stop the expansion of the kingdom of God. We sing a song that's uh, called Unstoppable. Our God is unstoppable. God, in the midst of our surroundings by evil, says, do not fear, be comforted. The kingdom of God is coming. Even through the exile of God's people in Babylon, even through the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, God says, be comforted. The kingdom is coming in ways you couldn't have dreamed. And even now, through what we're all experiencing in COVID, God's saying, I want you to be comforted. The kingdom is coming in ways you could not imagine. I'm going to get to those in a moment of how the kingdom's coming right now at Oak Mountain. Jesus said to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's our comfort. The gates of hell are trying to attack us. They're trying to keep us out of influencing the world. And Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail because the church will be unstoppable. The kingdom will never be stopped by evil. It's not being stopped now. Our mission at Oak Mountain is engaging every neighbor with the surprising power of grace. Over the fence of our neighbor's yard, over the mountain into the city, overseas to the nations, and over the pews to each other. We're to engage everyone with the surprising power of grace. And through this COVID crisis, evil has not stopped the kingdom from expanding. It's expanding greatly. Over the fence, many of us have shared social media posts from Oak Mountain on our own social media. And thousands are being reached. And the fact is, through COVID, our footprint of who we're reaching has never been larger. Evil means it for harm, but the kingdom is not stopped. 
over the mountain. Our mercy funds, because of y'all's generosity, we've given away about $50,000 over the past nine weeks. Most of it to downtown ministries. We've given to Urban Avenues, who has created something called Care Health, where restaurants who are in deep need and deep financial trouble are being paid to make meals so that frontline workers are able to be ministered to. You have seen the kingdom grow and have helped the kingdom expand in the midst of crisis. Over the mountain, over the overseas. You know, many churches through this crisis have had to cut their giving to missions. But through this crisis, we've not had to do that. The kingdom continues to expand. As a matter of fact, because of COVID and because of how we'd had to expand our use of technology, ministry partners around the world are now joining us in the ministries of Oak Mountain, unlike never before, and even over the pew. How would we have known seven years ago that something like this would have happened when we changed our leadership structure from a board of 55 decision makers that was very inefficient to releasing, training and releasing shepherding elders and under-shepherds and women's shepherding teams so that through this crisis, every single member of this church has been checked in on and checked up on. The kingdom of God is expanding. The gates of hell are not prevailing against it. And this is true in your own lives too. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your woundedness, God says it is through those things the kingdom of God comes. Not in spite of those things, but through those things. And God says, take comfort. When evil seems like it's getting away with murder, it's not. And when evil seems like it's prevailing against the church, it's not. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. And be comforted by that. And then thirdly and finally, be comforted that the believer is never forsaken. Look at verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, if you're not careful, you can interpret that as just be quiet before God. Shush. And that's not what God is saying to Habakkuk or to us at all. If I'm with my grandchild, my granddaughter, and we are at um, a playground, and some bully pushes her down, and she skins her knee, and I'm there, and I see it all. I run over to her, I scoop her up, I rub her back, and I say, shh, it's okay. Baba's here. It's all right. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. That's what God's saying. The Lord is in his holy temple. He's got you. He'll scoop you up. 
rub your back as your father and say, shh, it's okay. Now, God contrasts who he is in his temple in verse 20 with idols that the Babylonians worship, but idols that you and I worship too. Every one of John Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory, constantly cranking out things that we look to besides God for security and significance. An idol is anything you look to for comfort outside of intimacy with God. Look at verse 18 and 19. Unlike lifeless idols, God is the living God who never forsakes his children. He never takes a vacation. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's never got sweat on his brow. He's never wringing his hands. He's always there. But what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? An idol is a teacher of lies, verse 18. The lies of idols are this. Our coping mechanisms, our idols will never deliver the comfort, the security, or the significance that we look to them to deliver. They are lies. Woe to him. Here's the mock again. Aha! Woe to him who says to a lifeless thing, awake or arise. We see an example of this in Scripture. Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the idol Baal. He said, go ahead, call for fire from your idols. And they started praying, and then they started singing, and then they started shouting. Then they started cutting themselves. They were doing anything to get their idols to wake up and to deliver them. And then Elijah starts mocking them. Maybe he ought to cry louder. Maybe he's asleep. Or maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. Maybe you need to get his attention. He mocked the idols. And that's what's happening here. Woe. Aha. Ha. But the worshipers of God... We don't need to do anything to get his attention because he's always watching us and he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. I talked about my granddaughter skinning her knee and me scooping her up and holding her and saying, shh, it's okay. I need to tell you, I've, I've skinned some knees during this COVID crisis. I mean, those of you who know me, you know I'm a performance junkie. And how do you perform? How do you make right decisions when the target's always moving? I've been so frustrated by how many hours we've spent as a staff planning only to see most of this rolled up in a ball, most of them rolled up into a ball and thrown into a trash can. The target's always moving. The only thing that's certain right now is uncertainty. And that's created angst in me because I have a tendency to want to be validated by my performance, how I'm leading, how I'm making decisions. And I find myself in all of this uncertainty, feeling very insecure. So what do I do when I'm insecure? I turn to my idols. What are my idols? Performing, working harder. And in the midst of the confusion and the insecurity, I become insecure and I start pressing 
Just like a basketball player, when the game's out of control, they, they start pressing. They start trying to do too much. And then the game gets more out of control. And I find myself pressing, which ironically actually sabotages my deepest desire, which is to come through and to have impact. And in my confusion, I start to play tight. I'm, I'm playing not to lose rather than loosely playing to win. But by his grace, God is making me more quickly aware of my idols. And in the midst of my uncertainty and pressing and frustration, I'm learning that he wants to pick me up, rub my back and say, shh, I got this. And I begin to be comforted in the midst of the uncertainty. And I begin to rest. And I begin to experience his peace. And then something really wild and unexpected happens. I begin to play the game to win again. I'm no longer playing not to lose. I'm no longer pressing to take shots I shouldn't take. And in my rest, I'm working smarter, I'm working better, and I'm free in Christ. And that's what leads to the impact. You see, I tend to look at COVID as circumstances that need to be changed. But what God's saying to me is, Bob, I want you to come to me Hear me say, shh, and I want to change you. How about you through this crisis? In the uncertainty and the insecurity, how are you grasping at control? Trying to change circumstances rather than realizing God wants to pick you up and say, shh, and wants to change your heart. What God wants to do in our hearts is much more his deep desire than what he wants to do to change our circumstances. Jesus is proof that God doesn't forsake the world. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the one however, who was forsaken as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his back on the human nature of Jesus. Obviously, the divine nature of the Son of God and, and God the Father, that could never be separated. But in Jesus's experience as a human being, he was forsaken by God. Why? So God could scoop us up in the midst of our troubles and say, Shh, I got you. I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. Take heart. 
the Lord is never mocked. The kingdom is never stopped. And if you know Christ, you will never be forsaken. And there's great comfort in that. Let's pray. Father, these are surprising verses. They even can seem harsh. Until we go into your sanctuary and perceive what you're really saying. God, so many of your people are discomforted right now. And God, would you pour out your comfort? Remind us that evil will be brought to its knees. That you see our woundedness and you will deal with evil. God, thank you that the kingdom is coming, even in the midst of our stress and fear and suffering. And God, remind us that Jesus was forsaken, so we need never be. And God, if there's anybody watching this morning or listening that maybe now realize, oh my, I am under God's wrath, and I need to flee from that wrath, may they flee to Jesus, the one who drank the cup, and the one who was forsaken, so that they may join the church of the never forsaken. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me encourage you where you are uh, to stand as you're watching and receive the promise of God that is pronounced over you. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he turn his countenance upon you and be gracious to you and comfort you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and always. Amen.